0: good morning Ebenezer how are you this morning if you're in the room if you are online thank you so much for being here today especially if you're online or you are our guest today I don't care if this is your first time your second time or your tenth time we would love to get to know you if you're a guest today we have we've moved our welcome desk from this side of the lobby to the other side of the lobby so you can see it when you go out so please stop by Take a moment to fill out a card with us so we can give you a coffee mug. Thank you for being here. If you're online, we'd love for you to drop a note in the comments sections or even ask us, how can we pray for you? Because we want to be there for you. And speaking of prayer, I'd like to ask you guys, if you don't mind, stand back with me again. And I want to take a few moments because over the last two weeks, we've had some tragedies hit our community, especially overnight, as there was a serious car wreck that took the lives of of some people very precious to us and precious to you. Some of you are related to these people. And last week, the young lady who was shot while driving down the interstate, and I think it's very fitting right now that we lift those families up in prayer. So if you're online, you're in the room, would you bow right now, and let's pray that God will touch them. Father, in the name of Jesus, there's no other name by which we are saved, and there's no other name by which we can come to you. We come praying in the name of Jesus because it's through Jesus all of our wounds are healed. And so, God, I ask that you would touch those families affected today by this loss. I pray, God, that the Spirit of God would give them the peace that surpasses understanding because I can't even imagine the numbness and the questioning that may be taking place. None of it makes sense. Tragedy doesn't make sense, death doesn't make sense. That's why you sent Jesus to be risen from the dead so that he could give us that same gift. So, God, I pray that you are not just glorified in this, but, God, that people would turn to you for comfort and for hope. And so as we pray today, God, we ask for healing, we ask for peace, and we ask for support. In the name of Jesus Christ, we say amen. So as you're sitting down, I want to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament, the last book of what we call the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, or the law. And the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses following what was called a vassal treaty kind of structure. In the Middle East at that time, if another country or group of people came in and took over another group of people, they would enter into what was called a vassal treaty. And basically there was, a, there was a kind of a structure to it, but they would recount the history of what happened between those two people. They would then give some instructions for the group that was being taken over. And at the end, there would be a ceremony or a splitting of people where if they followed the instructions, this would happen. But if they didn't follow those instructions, something else bad would happen. When you look at the structure of Deuteronomy, that's what you see. You see a recounting of God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and the things they endured during the 40 years of wandering. And then you get to chapter 6, and he's going to begin to give instructions and in what I believe in verse number 4 to be the hinge pin verse of the Old Testament. The verse that defines who you And who I am. And so I want to take a moment to dig into this deep. Because I've talked to you about how I love scripture. It's very important to me. And I love grace. Grace is absolutely very important to me. But today what I want to talk about is family. Family is very important to me. Because I believe that family has more influence over children than the church ever will. In fact, I did some numbers. In fact, I wanna, I wanna visit, revisit a statistic I gave two weeks ago when I said that only 8% of teens in the world today are engaged in Scripture. The study comes from Barna, and they released their findings in a, in a publication called The Open Generation. And basically what they did is they went to 25,000 teenagers across 26 countries, speaking 17 different languages, and they asked this question. How do you, as a teenager, think about Jesus, the Bible, and justice? And so they took that data, and they classified the teenagers into three categories. The first category was defined as Bible-engaged teenagers. These are those who have, these teenagers who have a high view of the Bible, believing it's the word of God, that it's inspired with no errors. And they read the Bible several times a week. The other category is Bible open teens, and these are, they read the Bible less, maybe three or four times per year, and they have very neutral views on what the Bible represents or the place that it takes in their life. But then a third category they defined as Bible-unengaged teenagers, and that's self-explanatory. And they further took that 26,000 teenagers and they classified them again this way. They asked if they were committed, nominal, or just another group. The committed were defined as kids who, or teenagers who said, I am a Christian, I am a Christian and I follow Jesus. The nominal was those who just said, I'm a Christian, but didn't really say, I follow Jesus. And then the other group was, was Cri- people who may have had other religions or agnostic, agnostic atheist, and so forth. This is, where the, this is where the numbers start coming in. And, it, and, it, and I hope that it's a sobering moment. So listen to some of these statistics. When it comes to how the Bible speaks to personal identity, Bible-engaged teenagers, the ones who read the Bible during the week and held it in high regard, overwhelmingly believed that the Bible taught that that it teaches about a meaningful life, how to to understand purpose, and up to 80% believed that Scripture influenced their life. But hold on a second. That's four out of five of Bible-engaged teenagers. When you filter this down and you looked at that committed category, only 22% of the 26,000 teenagers said they were committed. 30% said they were nominal, so that makes up 52% claimed to be Christian. So half of this 26,000 that they interviewed claimed to be Christian. But here's the problem. Gensend, which is an extension of the North American Mission Board, Begin to kind of dig through those those statistics. I've got the report. It's about 20 something pages long. But here's what they found 42% of teenagers never read or consume the Bible at all. 61%, though, are open to the Bible. Like they're open to reading it, but they don't. Only 8% of the teenagers in the world are engaged with the Bible. Remember what I said engaged meant? That they held it in high regard and they read it on a weekly basis. That's less than one out of ten. But now let's talk about those who are claiming to be Christian. Only 52% of those who identified to be Christian claimed that the Bible is the word of God. Only half of the 52% who claimed to be Christian viewed the Bible as the word of God. What this implies, from those who claim to be Christian, that many teens who claim to know and follow Jesus never engage the Bible. Now, I know there's teens in the room right now. and What that means is, potentially, that only half of the teens in this room touch this on a weekly basis. Now, that seems very sobering and maybe even condemning. By no means do I mean it as a condemnation But what it opens up is the question, why? Why is this the way it is? Why is it that we are facing and fighting a biblically illiterate culture today? And I'm not talking about just knowing what the Bible says, but but holding it in enough high regard, as we talked about two weeks ago, that this matters for the instruction and the leading of my life. One conclusion to the study said this, Bible-unengaged teens aren't engaging the other disciplines either. Now catch this, they lack models and mentors of the faith. They participate less in church, and they do not pray. Jen Sin said this, that it revealed that teenagers today are open to learning more about their faith, but they often lack mentorship and training the church needs older generations discipling younger generations. We have a problem. I talk a lot about how we have problems to solve, intentions to manage. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a tension to manage. This is a problem to solve. Why? Because I love the family. I love the family. I am a champion For the family, I don't care what the family looks like in the way that it lines up scripturally, of course. Whether it's a foster home, whether it's a single parent home, we're all working through our stuff. But I still love the family. If you're grandparents in this room and you're raising your kids, you need the help of the church. If you're a single mom or a single dad, you need the help and support and love of your church. And today I want to unpack that. Just a little bit. Why? Billy Graham said it best. If we are ignorant of God's word, we'll be ignorant of God's will. You know, I was sitting the other day, and I've got to confess, I'm convicted. I spent 20 years in student ministry. And I have never in 20-something years of doing ministry seen a culture that doesn't know the stories of the Bible and I'm talking about maybe stories that we don't think about a lot. Balaam's donkey. Some of you are looking at me like, what? Yeah, it's in there. And other stories that we've, maybe we have forgotten more that we've learned, and maybe we know more about the New Testament and the Old Testament. What I'm saying is, do we know Scripture enough that it impacts our life? And do I want it to impact my life? And that's what I want to unpack today because there's so many layers to this. This is a spiritual issue. Bible's clear in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil is prowling like a roaring lion. Lionesses don't growl and, and roar when they're hunting. Satan wants to disrupt and tear you apart and keep us separated so we can't have influence over each other. It's a spiritual issue. It's a cultural issue. John was very clear in 1 John 2.16 that the things of this world is not from the Father. The, the lust. And the pride of life is not from fa- the father. It's a faith issue. Hebrews 11:6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. We live in a culture where we're more concerned about pleasing ourselves, pleasing those on social media than we are to stand in confidence of who we are in God alone. It's a church issue. Do you know why you have pastors and teachers and evangelists and all the other appointed positions in a church and why you need to be in a church? Because it's the only way you'll ever mature. It's what it says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. I wasn't called to this church to coddle you. I was called to this church to train you. I was called to this church to inspire you because what I see before me is an army. I don't, I don't see a bunch of babes in Christ who need the nurturing of milk, but those who can have the solid food and go out of these walls and live a life that inspires others to want to become a Christian. And most importantly, we have a family issue. Proverbs 22, 6. Anyone know it? If you know, if you know that verse, raise, up, raise your hand. If you don't, you will now. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, you know why we need to be a champion for the family? Because the family is vitally important. If you have your note sheets, go ahead and fill this in. We, we, when I say we, I mean the church and the family, we have the responsibility to teach the next generation. We do. Now, those roles are different. The church is an institution birthed at, at the, at the, when Christ died on the cross, was raised again, and the Spirit came, the church was birthed. That's one institution. But long before the church ever came onto this earth was the family. The family was instituted in the very beginning. And that first family was jacked up. Was it not? I, let's just be honest. Any of the rest of you read the Bible and realize your family isn't as messed up as you think? As I'm telling you, like when you're teaching children, you're going through the Bible and you're going, oh man, I don't know how I'm gonna tell this Bathsheba story to these kids. I mean, <laughs> does anybody else feel that tension? Because it is there, man, it's messed up. Who throws their brother in a pit? Except my brother. I mean, you look at these stories and you're going, but guys, listen, we can't sugarcoat what's in here. It. It's written because it shows how sinful we are and how great our need for a savior is. And we, family, parents, grandparents, foster parents, we are the distributors of the grace of God that models what Christ is offering to them. And do you do it perfect? No. That's why you need the grace of God, and that's why I need the grace of God, and that's why grace needs to be accelerated and expanded and declared in your home. That's why we need to lift up our families. Stephen Adams, who wrote this book called Children Ministry on Purpose, I love this statement. He said this, when the church and parents work together with God at the center of their efforts, they have synergy. This synergy carries with it a much greater potential for effective discipleship for kids. Parents have the biggest impact on a child. Did y'all hear that, parents? You, not us, you have the greatest impact on your children but trying to disciple your children without any help or support will limit your effectiveness. You're not in this alone. God has called the family and the church to make disciples of our children. Yet, the family has the primary influence in the child's life. You want me to repeat that statement? God has called the family first and has called the church To disciple, make disciples of our children. The family has the primary influence in a child's life. So I want you to take your Bible and I want you to stand with me as we read these verses from Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse number 4. Because I believe as we begin to unpack this, we're going to see three things. We're going to see what it is we should focus, how it is we're supposed to treat this, And where and when it's supposed to be treated. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, not your t shirt. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. If you mark your Bible, circle the word diligently. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Lord, let this word convict us today. That we may stand as champions and inspirations for our families as they do the work together with the church to disciple their children. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me dig into the text for the next few minutes because I got some more numbers to give you. I love numbers. I told you I a math teacher. But numbers tell a story. First one is this. The first blank there is the family must declare and love God. The family must declare and love God. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look again at verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there's a lot of different things that we need to look at in that one verse, and it is so loaded, but, but in the Hebrew language, the general word for God is el. Now, now, I've got kids in the room and some adults that might be good at grammar too, but when we pluralize a noun in English, what do we normally do? You add an S or an ES. Hebrew's a little different, but when you pluralize the word El, it is Elohim. you got to make sure you get that guttural in there. Elohim. Elohim. As early as Genesis chapter one, we are introduced to this God who is described as Elohim. And in Genesis 1:26 and 27, when he said, "And God Elohim, said, "Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, male and female, He created them." He was speaking to the plurality of the Godhead. There is only one God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. In Genesis chapter two, verse number three, it shifts from talking about Elohim creating to Elohim Yahweh, the Lord God. That name is introduced in the book of Exodus when Moses is at the burning bush and he comes to him and he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh, Jehovah. And it's this God who is the design by which we got, get our identity. We are created in the image of God, but that, that image has been marred. It's been, it's been hurt. It's been, it's been, it's been scarred by, by sin. And the only way that you and I can have that image restored is by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who then the third person of that Trinity comes and lives inside of you and me. And he wanted them to know that he is one, he is unified, but he's also, but he's also should be the one thing, the number one thing that our affections point to, that my loyalties point to. A.W. Tozer said this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so if we think little of God, we really can't think much of ourselves. Because when my view of God is distorted, guys, do you see why culture is being attacked right now with gender identity? No offense. But Satan is after making us question who we are, so we continually question who he is. And the ruler of the universe is not open for debate. He's not open to me coming to him and saying, well, God, this is just how I am and I just need you to love me regardless. No, he wants a better path for all of our sin. And when we line up with that and we give him our allegiance as the one, then I find that path God has laid out for me. And how do do I respond to that information? Well, he says it there, to love him. We are called to love him. Look again at verse number five. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. In fact, it was so important, that phrase, when Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment, what did he say? He said that. He knew, and here's the the implication, he knew he was God. He didn't forget that. He pointed back to that great Shema, that, hear, O Israel, Pointed back to that oneness statement and then said, love this God with everything that you have. Now, why am I starting there? Because, folks, you can't teach what you don't know. You can't share what you don't have. and You can't give what you don't own. Some of you in this room, you say you know Christ just like that nominal group. Yeah, I, I'm a Christian. But is Christ the ruler of your life? For many of us in this room, we've accepted the knowledge of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Christ, but we haven't accepted his invitation to follow him. When he says, The Lord is one, and I want you to love me with everything that you have, if we do not know God enough to recognize him, proclaim him, and covenantly love him, then you have no foundation for living. I have nothing to teach. You know, if you were going to learn a skill like the piano, you don't just go to anyone, do you? You go to somebody who's mastered that skill. If you want to teach, if you want learn how to build things, you go to a master construction worker. If you're going to learn how to weld, you go to somebody who can weld. If you want to, if you want to learn algebra, come talk to me. I mean, you go to somebody who knows how to do the stuff. If I stood up here today and told you that on the way in, I, I tripped over a rock and it looked like gold and I walked in here today and said, hey guys, guess what? I just tripped over what I thought was a piece of gold. I didn't mess with it. I really don't know if it was gold or not. I just, it just looked like gold. And, but if I'd have spent the time to wrestle that, that piece of jewelry, that, that, that piece of, 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 of element that is priceless and I came in here and I said, hey guys, look at what I found everyone in this room would go right back out where I dug that hole. You and I have to wrestle with the identity of God. We have to wrestle daily with our love and our commitment to him. Or as Paul said, I die daily so that I might know. It's the only way we're gonna be able to connect with him. It is a daily, minute-by-minute minute experience of God filling our life and leading us. And only then can we do this next point. The family must teach intentionally. Intentionally means not reactively. It means that you have a plan. It means that you have something laid out in front of you. So dig back with me again at verse number six. These words, what words? Know God and love him. These words that I'm commanding you today will be on your t-shirt. No, it's not what he says. It'll be on your bookmark. No, that's not what it says. It says to be on your heart. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says that your heart is desperately sick. By the end of this book, by the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, verse number 6, God's basically going to tell them this, guys, y'all are going to mess up. You're going, to break the, you're going to break this covenant and you're going to be banished. But I'm going to bring you back because he's a promise-fulfilling God. I'm going to bring you back. And he said, I'm going to take that heart of stone out. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. He says I'm going to circumcise your heart so that you will obey my commands. God wants us to follow him. I am glad that you and I have the confidence that if I trust Christ, I will not go to hell, but I'll be in heaven. But I'm more impressed when I realize that now I have a covenant relationship with the God of the universe who wants to change my life and lead me in his ways. So then and only then can I leave a, leave, leave, lead a life fulfilling enough that I'm not afraid of death. Because just like the disciples, if I lose my life, I knew the one who can raise my life back. And when we think about teaching our children, it is something that must be intentional. The Met Bible, in that verse where it says to teach them diligently, that word, uh, it, it's, it means to be repeated over and over again. In fact, the Net Bible says it's to drill it into something. You need to drill this into your kids, that God is the God of the universe, and we need to love him with all of our heart. Because here's, here's the thing, let me, give you a, let me give you an idea of what this looks like. The word move, I'm moving, right? Actually, I'm walking, but I'm still moving, right? If I were to sprint and start running, am I moving? It's the same difference. This verb might mean to dig, but when it says to dig diligently, it's a little bit more powerful. This word has intentionality built into it. Eugene Merrill says it like this. So much so is the case that the covenant recipient must impress the words of the covenant faith into the thinking of his children by inscribing them there with indelible sharpness and precision. He says this image is like that of an engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and a chisel in his hand and with painstaking care he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. Delicately, but with precision. And that's what the call of us. Our call is clear. We must intentionally nurture our children's faith. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I read a study one time that says that your worldview was set by the time you were exiting your teenage years. That's why... Children and teens are more susceptible to accept the gospel than older generations. What I'm asking you to do today is to analyze your journey. We can't go back and do what we did. Can't relive life. But from this point on, if you are in the church and everybody in the church is in a family one way or another, how can we leverage our influence to have the greatest impact on our next generation? Because that third point Reads this. The family must model faith everywhere. The family must model faith everywhere. Why do I say model? I can tell you all day long what you need to know, but if I'm not living it out, it's meaningless. If I go to my children and I say, Don't smoke, but I'm smoking, By the time they get to that age of life where they think abstractly, they're going to put two and two together, and they're going to be like, well, if you smoke, I'm going to smoke too. Or if I tell my child, you need to be in the Bible every day, but they don't see me in the Bible every day, I'm not modeling the discipline. We've been called to model. He said, listen to it again. He said, talk about them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, that that encompasses two things, geography and time. Geography and time. In other words, when I look at this and I look at the span of rising up and lying down, that's my day. When I look at, when I rise up and when I walk by the way, that describes my whole day, wherever I go. Wherever I am, whatever time of the day it is, I have the opportunity to declare the covenant of God to my children. He talked about phylacteries and Different things like that. I mean, you know how uncomfortable it would be to wear a box on your head? I mean, if you want to have some fun, go for it. Go tie a box on your head. But it would, I mean, you can imagine going through your day and that thing slipping down to right here. You know, and you're sitting there and it's sitting on your nose. Or probably, I didn't bring this belt to talk about discipline. But it would be kind of like the strap that they would put on their hand. And I mean, I've even tried, I've tried tucking this in this morning where it would stay on my arm. But all day long, this thing's getting in my way. Why? Because the covenant information of God ought to get in my way. It ought to be a consistent reminder throughout. Why why have I got this thing? Have you ever put a rubber band on your arm and snapped it? I've done that a few times when I I did it years ago to kind of help my stinking thinking. And every time I had a bad thought, I'd grab that rubber band and I'd pop it. It hurts. And it would, sometimes I'd look at my arm and it would be kind of cutting off my arm a little bit and be a little red because it would start itching It reminded me every moment of the day, use words wisely. And it's the same thing, guys. We have to let this permeate every avenue of our life if it's going to impact us or if it's going to impact our kids. So go back about two and a half years ago, April of 2020, and every one of us were told, stay home. I was six years into my doctoral uh, work, and I had to come up with a project. And I was striking out. I was emailing my professor and said, hey, what if I do this? And they're like, I don't know, that's maybe too broad. So the world shuts down and I'm sitting at home and I'm going, I'm getting calls and texts from parents going, we don't have church, what do I do? And I realized at that moment, parents need to know how to disciple their children at home. And so I came up with six Values, or I call them best practices in my in my in my work. But I want to share those six with you. The first one was this: embrace your role, parents. If you're going to impact the next generation, you have to embrace that you are the primary influencer of your children. So let me give you one last stat that I came up with. If you do the math, and I mean I'm giving this very liberally, you have your kids compared to the church. When they're not asleep and not at school, 95% of the time. The church at most has them 5% of the time they're not in school or asleep. You tell me who has the greater influence, good or bad. It's not us. And I calculated that based on two hours a week at church for 52 weeks. And that's not the case. We're in constant competition That's why if you see down through there, I have model what you see. I've already talked about that one. Guard how you spend your time. That's why I'm not a fan of travel teams. Because for those families that say, all right, we're going to fill out our schedule with our team sports, and then whatever's left over, we'll take them to church. Guys, that's communicating something negative. It's telling you that the church is a service for your family, not a family to be serviced with. Not a family to serve with. This building, when it's empty, is just timber and sheetrock. We are are the church, and we need to prioritize that time. We need to celebrate when something cool happens in their life, like getting saved, getting baptized, moving from 12th grade to to being a freshman in college. We need to leverage key relationships. Parents, you're not the only ones feeding into your life, but be intentional about it. There are some great life group leaders here that wanna pour into you and pour into your kids. Leverage that. And the last one there is simple, partner with the church. We're in this together, and it's real easy, especially if you're you're introverted, to lock up in your house and think nobody else is going through the same things I'm going through. That's not true. Remember, we said this is a spiritual issue. Satan wants to separate you, keep you separated from other families that might empathize with you, help strengthen you, to help encourage you. In fact, if you look at this last infograph, I know you won't be able to read it uh, because the text is a little bit small, but they interviewed some 18 to 29-year-olds. And they asked them, why did you stay in church? Because what they found in this group was that only 25% of them stayed in church. Y'all see the graphic? On this graphic, let me back up because this is made by Josh Denhart. My graphic got really big on my screen for a moment. He says number one, two, three, four, and five. You know what one through three are? First one says that what kept a person in church was that their family sat at the table five out of seven days a week. The second one said that they served with their family in ministry. And number three, it says that they had a spiritual experience at least once a week at home. Who has the most influence in a child's life? It's not me. Parents, it's you. Grandparents raising grandkids, it's you. Foster parents, it's you. Single mom, single dad, it's you. And when we could line up and see that synergy, here's what we can see beginning to play out. We can focus on Scripture to know God. We can focus on grace to make a, leg, to, to make a difference, but we focus on family to lead a legacy. Would you stand with me? And as you stand, I just want to challenge you. This is a daunting task. You and I don't have the strength or the energy to do any of this on our own, do we? But it's vital. When you read the Ten Commandments, the first one said, no other gods before you and don't make any graven images. In that second one, it comes with a curse. Because if you do, if you make an idol in your life, it will be visited to the third and fourth generation. It has legacy effect I want my legacy to be different I want our church's legacy to be different if you're in this room and you don't have any other family yes you do you look across this aisle and you see your faith family no one alone this is a place of hope and we need hope for our families and so for many of us in this room I'm gonna give you three next steps today very simple number one if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior don't you leave this room Crosby will be over here. I'll be over here. Fred's down here. You come to one of us and you talk to us about where you are spiritually. Because if God's not number one in your life, then I want you to really analyze and ask the question, does the Spirit of God live inside of me? Seriously. Maybe you accepted Christ and you've never been in those baptismal waters. That's the first step of obedience. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit If you have not been baptized, if you don't have your baptism on the right side of your timeline where you made a profession of faith and trust in Christ and you haven't been baptized after that, I want to invite you to come and let one of us know. And thirdly, you can't share what you don't own. And membership to Ebenezer is about ownership. We have a a Discover Ebenezer class coming up in just a few weeks, and I want to beckon you to sign up. I love that word, beckon. I want to beg you to sign up. Make this place your home. And so, Father, as we wrestle with this message today, I pray that you would stir our hearts and inspire us to see our place in raising up the next generation and helping them know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.